Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about sexual abuse, including sexual assault and rape. It also contains a deep and detailed discussion about suicide and self-harm. This podcast also contains a bit of a discussion on domestic abuse, so some listeners may find this podcast extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. Thanks for joining me once again for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each episode, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guests for this episode, listeners, are two incredible women. Lucy and Verity Nevitt are twin sisters and the founders of The Gemini Project, which is a non-profit organisation that aims to end sexual violence through advocacy and campaigns, dispelling myths and demanding justice along the way. Lucy and Verity's desire to start The Gemini Project was born out of their own lived experience of sexual abuse in their teens, and then again in 2017, where after a night out with friends, Lucy and Verity were both sexually assaulted by the same man. Along their journey to seek justice, after they named their rapist online, they were taken to court by him attending two hearings where they waived anonymity and fought an injunction and reporting restrictions. In July 2020, they came to an agreement that stated they can still talk openly about their experience as long as they do not name their alleged perpetrator. In this episode, we discuss Lucy and Verity's upbringing and having to witness parental domestic abuse, the story around the night of the rape itself from both their perspectives and how their reactions to it were vastly different. We also discuss their therapy journeys afterwards and the trauma that they have been trying to heal since. We also discuss how the rape affected their relationships, friendships and how they have turned this hugely traumatic and horrific event in their life into a positive through the work of the Gemini Project. Much like the episode I did with Ella Brooks, this podcast will contain some extremely dark and upsetting stories, so an extra trigger warning from myself here before we begin. This is Verity and Lucy's story. Lucy, Verity, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Despite the fact we've all been Twitter friends, in inverted commas, for what seems like an eternity, we've only now got this together, but I'm really grateful to you both coming on and sharing your story. First off, given what we are living in at time of recording, how are you both coping and managing right now? Lucy, why don't you go first? Probably not fantastic. Um, I said it's been a bit peaks and troughs, kind of a mixed bag. For the first time really kind of struggled with low mood as a result of like the lockdowns. My coping mechanisms usually are, like socialising with friends and getting out of the house. <laughs> so having those options cut off has been kind of difficult. But yeah, I also decided to move back in with my parents, which is kind of a struggle in itself, like re-establishing those dynamics and trying to be like, I'm older now, I'm not a kid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to end my degree, which is exciting. And I'm about to move back to London with lockdown easing starting to feel a bit more positive yeah so hopefully it's kind of coming to the end yeah I kind of feel the same way as you about that peaks and troughs to be fair for sure and Verity how have you been yeah I think I've actually been pretty good lockdown suited me really well I'm definitely quite 
antisocial and try and isolate as much as possible ordinarily when I'm not feeling great. So it was kind of really comfortable. Like the first lockdown definitely was like a bit of a comfort blanket for me. And I was out of work at the time. So I was kind of really anxious for it to lift. But yeah, I've, you know, I struggled with my PTSD quite badly at the beginning of the first lockdown. I've been really lucky. Like I've got a job now and then just being employed and like having a nice house and a stable relationship. Yeah, I think I'm pretty content, all things considered. Great stuff. Your journeys are incredible. And I'm sure this pod will help many girls and boys who have been through similar experiences to you. So shall we just start the show? Your journeys are both unique and at times traumatic in their own way, girls. I don't want this pod to just be about the rape you experienced, but about both of you holistically as people. So let's go back to the beginning if we can. Lucy, let's start with you. Talk me through your early life, teenage years, and looking back, for you, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Lucy we meet here? I'd say, yeah, definitely, but if you'd have asked me at those ages, I would have said I had absolutely no issues. (laughs) But retrospectively, I definitely struggled with certain things. I mean, like, my childhood was really great. I can't really pinpoint anything that was less than perfect. I'd say I was kind of like spoiled, did well at school. I used to do lots of ballet, which I did really well in, like zero worries basically. And then my parents split up when I was about nine years old. and I kind of witnessed a lot of that, which was a messy divorce to say the least, I think. But I kind of took on the role of being the okay one and always trying to support like my mum or my sister or kind of whoever was going through it at that time. I would think I was really conscious of being an additional burden. So for a long time, I kind of just denied anything affected me and was totally okay with it, I think, to kind of put on a front of, like, strength just for other people. But that just kind of meant I buried everything. Um, My coping mechanisms tend to be really avoided, just pushing everything to the back of my mind. But obviously, the only thing with that is it kind of tends to creep out a bit later, which um, I definitely saw anyway. Um, I mean, my teenage years were a bit more temperamental. I definitely struggled with, like, self-esteem issues. I do remember being upset a lot. I moved to school again when I was, like, nine not nine year seven how old are you in year seven like 12 (laughs) and that was um kind of difficult like peers weren't really welcoming i remember receiving loads of unwanted attention pretty constantly like sexual harassment stuff was like a daily experience at that time i didn't really understand it i knew it didn't make me feel very nice but no teachers ever stepped in or anything so i kind of just brushed it off but yeah at that time i'd say the lucy you would have met she was really sweet quite shy naive innocent quite trusting, didn't have much of a backbone. I didn't really know how to stand up for myself. I'd kind of say that's quite different to who I am now. And yeah, I mean, I struggled with sick form as well. I moved around a lot in the first year. I didn't have like a lot of friends and that probably affected me as well. But yeah, the whole time while there were things going on, I just maintained I was completely okay. And it wasn't really until I was older that I was able to admit to myself, like maybe I have an issue with like mental health. Same question to you, Verity. Who's the Verity we meet here as well? Mine's a bit different, Lucy, in that my mental health has essentially been a lifelong battle in that I began self-harming when I was four, which is quite young. We were both being bullied, actually, in school, and it was just a way I, I coped with that. I was diagnosed with depression when I was nine during my parents' divorce. And then during my teenage years, especially between 11 and 18, I really struggled um, with anxiety and depression um, and self-harm as well. And it wasn't until after the incident in 2017 that I began 
experiencing PTSD symptoms and was diagnosed with PTSD. Right now I'm kind of just managing all of them and I'm pretty proud to still be here. I'm in a really good place and I've been self-harm free for a good few months so I'm quite proud of that. I still experience flashbacks and nightmares and all the usual PTSD stuff like hypervigilance but I definitely feel much stronger and able to cope with anything and everything having experienced the worst. Before we come to the family stuff that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Lucy, I think it's important to state that the night you were both sexually abused wasn't the first time you'd experienced sexual abuse, Lucy. If you felt comfortable and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want, can you tell the listeners about what happened when you were 13 and the violence that was inflicted on you for the first time there? So it was my first sexual experience. I was 13 and that was by someone who was my boyfriend at the time. I remember like quite distinctly not wanting it, but not knowing how to articulate no. I'd been pressured like on a couple of other occasions, previously had voiced that I didn't want to. His response kind of felt like, made me feel that I couldn't really talk or say no the next time. I remember like trying to move away and turning away and just being very unenthusiastic, trying to show that I obviously didn't want to. I just kind of assumed that he didn't notice it, like we were both young, I was just like, oh, okay, like he wasn't aware of my feelings. And then after it happened, I felt really awful and I just didn't know why. Lots of school peers like eventually found out and they would come up to me and laugh and just be like, oh, you raped, like like in like a jokey way, um, like how kids are kind of thing. And I was just really confused. Like I didn't really know what to say. I didn't really know where I'd come from. And I was just really scared he would get in trouble and that I would have to like talk to the police or something. And I really didn't want that. I didn't want any fuss. I just didn't want to talk about it. So I just shut everything down. And I kind of just told myself like he didn't know what he was doing. And it wasn't really until later on I found out the rumour had come from him and that he'd said on the playground something like she wasn't ready, but I did it anyway. And that's when I knew to call it kind of what it was, that it was rape. It wasn't until I was 16 that really I started to deal with that experience. I'd finished secondary school and so I no longer had to see that person every day. I finally had the space to deal with it. I think I remember Googling what constitutes rape basically and then seeing that written down on Wikipedia and being like, okay, that happened to me. Yeah, I just internalised so much shame and having to unlearn that was quite a lot of work. The whole time I just pretended I was okay, but it didn't really affect me. Yeah, I remember the day it happened, you came home and I don't know why, I just said to you, like, did something happen? And you were like, no, no, in denial, but something had. And it's so weird that both in that incident and the one in 2017, I knew I had this gut feeling that something had happened. I don't think that's like a twin connection or anything creepy like that. I think that's just, I know you so well. And yeah, you did definitely internalise a lot of that shame. Your self-esteem was so low because of that. There's been a lot of stuff in the news recently about, I think it was a private school that was getting in a lot of trouble for accepting or defending almost or allowing it to happen, rape culture. Do you think that it's now in schools finally starting to be taken seriously or do you think there's still a long way to go? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Cause obviously I haven't been in school for a while now, but remembering when I was there, it wasn't necessarily taken seriously, especially by peers on peers. I don't think that was even recognised. I remember like, like I would literally get sexually harassed all the time. Like I get groped, like people in class would shout stuff out at me. No one ever said anything. I think too often teachers kind of brush it off as like, oh, it's banter, or they're just kids, or like the typical boys will be boys kind of thing. I don't necessarily know if enough teachers have the tools 
to understand that there might be something more there. I mean, obviously they're kind of given basic training on like assault and sexual abuse and things to look out for, but I think it's very much looked at more from like if a caregiver is doing that to a student rather than another student. And I think also like, I mean, it's not an easy thing to confront. And I think not enough teachers like know to reach out or like are too scared because, oh, maybe like it's nothing. I just don't think they're necessarily proactive enough. Let's talk family now, because when you're both nine years old, like you said, your parents divorced and you moved to Southampton from East Sussex, am I right in saying? How big a change was that for both of you and how did it impact your mental health? Lucy, do you want to go first? Yes, that was a really big change for both of us. Essentially, our life as we knew it was all in Southampton, our family, our friends, school, hobbies. So moving somewhere new, especially at that age, was quite difficult. The biggest change was from a city to a small town. There wasn't a whole lot to do. We found people were very like close-minded, like typical small town mentality. It wasn't very diverse. I missed my friends a lot. I had to give up dancing as much as I used to because there just wasn't a big dance school that did those things. I was definitely upset, but it didn't impact my mental health, I don't think, beyond that, or I didn't recognise that it did. For Verity, though, that definitely really impacted her, I'd say. That was kind of the beginning of her mental health issues, really declining, and that was quite hard for all of us, I'd say. Verity, do you want to elaborate on that for me? Yeah, I think when I moved, there was nothing to do and it was such a different environment to what we'd grown up in. Like, the amount of greenery felt really suffocating and oppressive to me. I became increasingly depressed and I had a lot of anger. People at school just weren't very friendly. So we'd gone from being, like, quite popular and having a lot of friends and, like, our entire lives in one place to not really having anything in another. I didn't really know how to deal with those emotions, so I was just really angry towards, like, my family. I used to get in from school and just go straight to take a long shower and then just cry and put on my pyjamas and kind of mope around. I hated the new school. The people just weren't friendly and they used to call me names and a lot of the girls kind of expressed their jealousy by being really cold. I miss Southampton a lot. I had a lot of friends there and I just, I'd loved my school. So it was a huge adjustment that I wasn't really willing to make. I was kind of just constantly desperate to be back in Southampton where I felt like I fit in. I kind of felt like I'd lost my identity and myself in moving. My whole life had been uprooted and I just wasn't good at handling that change at all. I'd had to give up dance and I really resented that. We did keep all of our childhood friends and we're still in contact with them in Southampton, which is kind of funny because there's no one from Sussex we have contact with now. And one of my childhood best friends had a baby a couple of years ago. And when I met them the first time, they referred to me as Auntie Verity. (laughs) And that was like such a heartwarming, kind of beautiful moment for me to know I've got friends like that, despite the move. Like I value those friendships more than anything. Like even if we don't see each other often, the distance didn't destroy those. And I'm so thankful for that. Those friendships sort of kept me going during my teenage years. And I really clung to those. And I'm just really glad that those friends cared enough to stay in contact as well. Some divorces can be very messy and traumatic for the children involved. Some, as I found out on this pod, can be very amicable and thankfully very trauma-free. Unfortunately for you both, it was the former because your father was domestically abusing your mum. If you felt comfortable saying, Lucy, can you tell me your memories of this period and what you witnessed at that age? I understand there was a story from Dancing World, when you went to, sorry, Dancing World, that was quite harrowing when you came back from it. Is that right? Yeah, that's great. So we were about eight or nine at the time. Initially, we were just sat down by our parents, told, you know, your dad's moving out. We were told he had depression, he was sick, and that part of him moving away was for him to get better. And that was true. 
we were upset about that and I both remember both of us crying but it didn't feel that final at that point I don't think divorce was on the table at that point I didn't know anything that had been going on behind the scenes like my dad had been violent to my mum but that wasn't told to us my mum did protect us from quite a lot so it was quite confusing because we didn't have access to the whole information so we kind of just took their word for it but yeah the dancing world so that was Irish dancing and then my brother competed in a Kaylee team and we all went there to Glasgow to go support him initially it was meant to be all us kids and both parents my mom was quite ill so she didn't end up coming a few days after we got back my dad came to the front door one day and he was like shouting and knocking on the door and basically he'd assumed that when we were away my mum had had an affair. I just remember my mum running around the house saying don't open the door and shut any windows and I remember being really confused because you know that was my dad like why aren't we letting him in but I just did, kind of did what I was told I remember going into the kitchen to shut the windows but he had it, it seems like it happened so quickly like he had climbed over the back garden gate and had like come round and was like climbing through the window. I don't really remember a whole lot that happened after that. I just kind of remember him going straight for my mum. I don't remember him even saying a word to us. She just started saying to us quite calmly, like call the police. But obviously we didn't want to, you know, that's our dad. And it was a really weird situation for us. It was like, oh, can we not just sort this? Like dad, stop, like the police are scary kind of thing. And at some point in that time, my mum had got hold of a phone and tried calling the police. But my dad got it off of her and hung up. And then at another point, the phone rang and it was a family friend and my dad had answered it. And my mum was just shouting, like, call the police, call the police, but she didn't hear. And then after that, he just, like, kind of dragged her up the stairs with me and Verity, like, just following behind him, like, trying to pull her off and just, like, begging him to stop and just crying. And then he, like, got quite violent with her and, like, pinned her down, was, like, shaking her and, like, asking questions. I just remember with my whole body strength at that time, which wouldn't have been much, just trying to pull him off. And my mum just basically just really calmly saying, call the police. And we were both just really scared. We didn't really know what to do. Eventually he left and the call my mum had made to the police had actually gone through. And because he'd been abusive before, they knew to come to the house. So they actually arrived shortly afterwards. And we had to give statements to the police. My mum was really shaken up. And I just remember being sat on the sofa with a cup of tea. And yeah, it was just very strange that night we didn't feel safe so we went to a family friend's and we stayed there the night which was literally just down the road but I remember going into my mum's room that night because it ended up like me and my sister and their kids we shared a bed so it was like four to a double bed I didn't have a lot of space so I went down to my mum's room and my dad was just like non-stop ringing her phone I remember having like something like 40 missed calls and it just like non-stop ringing and again like finding that being scared for some reason. I don't know why, because it was just like a, a phone ring, but it just felt quite intimidating and like invasive. And it was so different to my dad that I knew that it was just, yeah, not a nice experience. I think it's like important to notice as well that like when all this was going on, just before he moved out, I remember him like really going through the house phone all the time, checking the phone, seeing who my mum had been calling, kind of asking us a lot of questions like, oh, where have you been? What have you been doing? And I remember he wasn't allowed keys. We had to like open the garage door for him at one point. I don't really know why that was. That was a thing. But again, we didn't really question it. So I remember that day where he broke into the house, him knocking on the front door and me just like running down the stairs to go and open it. And then my mum just being like, please don't open the door. And me just being like, 
on the stairs where I'd been like going down to open the door, just like standing there, like really confused. And then we were running around trying to close all the windows and things. I think the biggest memory in that is just, I remember just trying to pull my dad off her and just not being able to, and just crying and holding on for like a tiny bit longer with my arms around my dad, thinking I'd never see him again because he was like going to go to prison or something. I felt like I was kind of saying goodbye. It was really strange. We just like was so scared and didn't know what to do. And the call to the police had gone through. So that was obviously helpful and when they came I kind of I still remember the t-shirt I was wearing when I gave my statement to the police and then afterwards we sat with my mum and we just begged her to tell us everything because we just had to know what was going on and she didn't really want to tell us because you know that's our dad and we, we all loved him and she wanted to protect us from that knowledge but eventually she did tell us everything that had been going on and we were in quite shock and we all just sort of cried and I remember having to take photos of like my mum's bruises and stuff for evidence but it's funny the friend that called while it was happening was our Irish dance teacher we'd all gone to Glasgow a couple of days before and then that's the house we stayed at that night as well so we were just like really lucky to have I guess kind of like a safe haven in them and their family. This was obviously such a traumatic experience for you both in having the sanctity of your home broken by your dad of all people what trauma did that leave behind and did it affect how you behaved in the house too when it came to triggers or things like that Lucy yeah definitely I think it was really interesting so I recently went through therapy and this is one of the memories I guess that I worked on and kind of worked through and something that I realized is that experience kind of made me internalize the idea that I was worthless that I wasn't worth thinking about because when my dad did that he didn't say anything to me he didn't think about me, so to speak. But something I really remembered was the fact that my mum did that whole time. She was only thinking of me and Verity. Despite what was happening to her, she just remained so calm and just was telling us like to call the police calmly. She wasn't screaming and she just kept consistently saying, like, not in front of the girls, stop, you're upsetting Lucy and Verity. And so just to know that I've always been really loved and cared about even in those moments was nice because that wasn't exactly the part of the memory I f focused on. I kind of just took the rubbish part of it. But yeah, in terms of behaviours, it was, it made us lock the doors a lot more often. I think we changed the locks just to be cautious. I think that no one could get in. We got a burner phone that my mum put behind the toilet in her ensuite in case it happened again and that we didn't have access to a phone, that we knew there was like an emergency one there basically. We had a restraining order against him. We were still kind of scared he would come around though. We didn't think that was necessarily going to be effective. I remember one time the phone ringing in the kitchen and all of us just standing, like looking at it, just frozen, too scared to pick it up in case it was him. And it's only really retrospectively that I see all the trauma that I kind of left behind. Yeah, I just think I felt quite unsafe in my own home and the fact he'd ignored Verity and I, I just internalised that. And I think that probably contributed to some of my like, self-esteem issues. Yeah, it also ingrained like a lot of trust issues for me, basically in that you never know what someone's capable of. You know, my parents have been together since they were 14 and they've been married for such a long time. And so for one day for him to go from, you know, the loving father and this great husband to becoming violent, it was just so scary how someone can just change like that, especially after you've known them for such a long time. I think that was quite difficult to come to terms with. And yeah, I think maybe kind of fearful of men. If that wasn't enough of an event to scar you, there was another incident where your dad physically, and I'm almost tentatively saying this, but 
tried to kidnap you when you were at your godmother's, uh, godparents' house, sorry. Lucy, can you tell the listeners about that story if you feel comfortable? Yeah, so it's kind of like a weird one. I still don't really know how to make sense of it, to be honest. But this was at, during the point we had the restraining order against my dad and we weren't allowed to see him. And my mum was quite worried about us being safe with him. But yeah, my mum had gone to meet, like this is quite some time on, but my mum had gone to meet, who was now my stepsister at the time in Brighton. And so Verity and I were being babysat by our godparents that day. And I just remember we were on their driveway. It was like a sunny day. We were like chalking <laughs> on the driveway. And he suddenly just showed up. I'm not really sure how he knew we were there. But I remember being scared and telling him to leave and saying, you know, like, we're not supposed to see you. And him just saying, like, telling us to get in his van, both of us just saying no. And he tried to pick me up. And I just crossed my arms and tried to sit down with like all my body weight and just said, no, I'm not going anywhere with you. I mean, I didn't have any shoes on. His van only had like one passenger seat. So it was impractical as well as like kind of an illegal restraining order at the time. But I don't know how long I was kind of sat there like arguing with him basically. But my godparents then came out, told us to go inside. And I just remember being in there upstairs bedroom window and looking out and the police had come. Um, they'd obviously called the police. And he eventually drove away. But that was, yeah, definitely a really weird time. And I know it definitely made us scared of certain things or being, like, taken away. My mum specifically, like, she'd given our passports to, like, a friend just in case because, like, you kind of think of, like, the worst-case scenarios and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was, like, a just a weird experience, I'd say. How did those events affect both of your relationships with your dad? Verity, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I was always a daddy's girl. Like, we were really, really close. So it was just strange because it completely changed that. I didn't really know how to respond. My mum still encouraged us to have a relationship with him, like, really encouraged us. Like, would literally hand us the phone sometimes and be like, you have to call your dad, you have to speak to him, you know, he's your dad. So we did, but we weren't as close. There was always this unspoken thing there. He'd kind of tried to basically say she was lying it hadn't happened and that affected our relationship with our grandparents who kind of like took his word over hers and that was really difficult because we'd seen it with our own eyes we knew what had happened he said at one point that he was going to tell them and make it right and then he just never did I mean I love my dad like so much of course I do but it's just weird now because I feel guilty when I see him because of what he did Lucy and I are really hard line with cutting our abusers from our lives I think because of what happened to us the moment we know someone has like either domestically or sexually abused someone we just cut them off like we're very harsh about that so it feels kind of like I'm not practicing what I preach so I do struggle with that I think if he reached out more we'd be closer but I understand like he was in a bad place at the time and depressed but that obviously doesn't excuse domestic violence nothing does it just kind of maybe adds some context or a bit of an explanation of why it came out the blue but yeah I think I gave my mum a bit of a hard time when we moved I didn't really understand why we had to move but since my sexual assault I understand that far more and just that she had to do that for the sake of her own mental health you know and she really suffered so much more just by putting us first and I've got just so much respect for her and I just think she's an incredible woman and mother I just think that the biggest thing for us has just been how amazing my mum was, really. But yeah, my dad seems in a much better place now. He really struggled with the divorce and with us moving away. And that was really hard to see. Lucy, how did it affect you? At first, it just made me quite scared of him. We didn't have much contact for the best part of years. So there weren't any like positive experiences to kind of override that negative one. And I just, that really kind of stood in my mind. But yeah, like Verity said after that, my mum did make us see him because she thought that was the right thing to do to have a relationship with him. So eventually I just stopped being scared and it became kind of normal. I just tried to kind of 
blank that experience from my mind and try to just maintain as normal relationship with him as I could. But as I've gotten older, I haven't had to see him as much. Like uh, my mum would arrange, we'd go there like every other weekend or in half terms, but I haven't had to do that. And I've kind of reflected on it a bit more. And yeah, it is a bit of a grappling thing because of what he did. Like, do you cut him off or not? But with the period in between of us having a relationship, I think that kind of clouds it a bit more. He doesn't really reach out that much. I think to say our relationship's quite distant. We talk sometimes and we see each other like a few times a year, but we're not close at all. I do struggle with how that relationship is. I don't think either of us have probably resolved that fully. But yeah, it's just a complicated relationship. Moving on now, arguably the biggest trauma both of you have gone through was when you were both sexually abused after a night out on the 24th or 25th of August 2017. Verity, as you were assaulted first... Can you tell the listeners, if you feel comfortable, about your side of the story, your version of the story, and how it played out and how that impacted your mental health? So my experience was quite strange in that, you know, this is someone I'd been in a long-term relationship with. So originally, when I knew what he'd done to me, but didn't have the knowledge of what he'd done to Lucy, I kind of just excused it as him being drunk and falling back into usual habits of when we were together, which looking back, so much of it was just sexual abuse. I kind of just wrote off. It was my first sexual relationship. So I just didn't really practice what I preached in terms of consent and just the lines got really blurred in that respect. I didn't really recognise what was happening as being sexual assault or just didn't really want to label it as that because then that would sort of label him as being someone who would perpetrate that and I wasn't really comfortable with that because to me he was like the perfect guy. He was always so lovely and kind and generous. So it was really hard to put those two things together. I know I said no and I reminded him that I had a boyfriend and just kept moving away to the point where I was on the floor, (laughs) just trying to get away and just being like, stop, you're drunk, like go to sleep. I just kept being like, can you just go to sleep? Like I was getting annoyed with it. So when he was asleep, I just left. I was so uncomfortable. And I told him the next day over the phone what he'd done and just said, you know, you did this, you know, you touched me, you put your finger in my mouth and then into yours, that made me really uncomfortable. And he was actually really shocked and in disbelief like he was like oh my god no I can't believe I did that I'm so sorry like you know me I wouldn't normally do that and he apologized like quite profusely but yeah that was quite odd. Lucy we'll come to you in a second but on that night in question you both did a BBC News interview about this and a moment just just broke me in two basically where you spoke about leaving the party after you were assaulted Verity whilst Lucy was still there and horrifically and tragically Lucy was then raped. Now, it was definitely not your fault that happened and you could have never foreseen that, what was going to take place. But can you just explain why you initially did think that? Yeah, I think it's inevitable to kind of think I was partially responsible, like for myself to think that, but also maybe for others too. I think that's the biggest thing I struggled with, with going public with our story is that I'd be blamed by others when I already blame myself so much. I obviously wasn't responsible at all and couldn't have foreseen what happened. But I'd introduced this person into our lives five years previously and I just felt so stupid for having trusted him, especially with what had happened with our dad. I felt like he was one of the good guys and he wouldn't do that, but he just did the kind of same thing it came out of the blue and he did the worst thing to hurt us I just never thought he'd harm anyone else especially Lucy they were like brother and sister they were so close like really good friends she'd confided in him about her sexual assault when she was 13 and was kind of like the person that she was kind of working through that with and I just I kind of just never 
really thought he'd hurt anyone else. I know he'd done similar to me so many times before, but I just ignored the red flags. I just felt so guilty for having left her with him and that he used that time to rape her. For a long time, I, I couldn't look her in the eye. I felt so sick from guilt. I just constantly felt like I was going to vomit. I remember her coming round a couple of days after and just not being able to look her in the face and just wanting to like burst into tears. I began drinking really heavily and I relapsed for self-harm and eventually I attempted suicide and I'm not really sure how I survived that to be honest. I remember the nurse looking at my boyfriend and just like being like kind of shaking their head like this isn't good and waiting so long for the ambulance I told Lucy I don't know why I told Lucy I think maybe I obviously didn't maybe want to fully and she drove up with my parents and they got me to the hospital just as I was like starting to like vomit everything up and it was scary probably for her I was really out of it by this point when I was in hospital for three days with like loads of drips and medicines and stuff so it's kind of a miracle I survived that but that was purely because of the guilt I was feeling I just felt so guilty seeing Lucy suffer so much. The shock and guilt were the hardest to deal with. It was just so confusing to comprehend and heartbreaking to see how hurt she was. Like for me, that was heartbreak. Uh, I just felt awful. Like Lucy is the most important person to me. She's my twin and my best friend. Like I call her my soulmate because, you know, we kind of came into the world together and we always say that we'll go out together. You kind of like, you know, in the notebook where they lie next to each other, that sounds quite morbid, but we're twins and we always say, oh, we'll just take a trip to like Switzerland or whatever. And because we don't want to ever be without each other. So, you know, having not protected her, I don't think that guilt will ever go away. You both reacted very differently psychologically to the abuse you received. Have you ever spoken to each other about why you perhaps reacted differently and the, the deeper reasons behind that? Verity, do you want to go first? So I didn't find out the explicit details of that night until I did it in court documents in 2019. So I only found out she was raped in April 2018, a couple of days before she reported to the police. We'd been arguing a lot because Lucy just did not want to talk about it and I had to know everything, was kind of like picking at it like a scab and couldn't really leave it alone. So a couple of days before she reported to the police, she phoned me and we just talked extensively about what had happened for the first time. I'd always assumed it was the case because I kind of know what he used to do to me. So I had an idea, but I hadn't heard the words to confirm that. So when I found out, it was a few days after the incident in 2017 when we were at a friend's family party and I'd been worrying about her. She wasn't herself. I had this gut feeling that something was wrong. I knew something had happened because he'd rung me the next day and he told me that they'd both woken up without underwear. So he was the one that tipped me off to that something had happened. And it was really strange the way he said it. He was kind of like gloating and boasting about it. And I just felt awful and was just like, no, that's not right. She wouldn't do that. I knew it wasn't like a consensual thing because when I left, she was passed out. She was completely passed out asleep and because we'd been drinking that night. So I just had this gut feeling of dread. And eventually at that party, a couple of days later, she said, I woke up to him touching me. That was it. That just that phrase just I woke up to him touching me and she said she didn't want to talk about it and I knew not to push her any further for details in that moment those words were enough I remember going outside and um ringing him immediately and the venue was kind of like on this road and I just remember being on this road like crying just yelling down the phone like so angry like how could you do this but yeah that's all she told me there was never any detail just the statement of fact that something had happened and Lucy how did you process it and how did you have that conversation with Verity when it came to it? Yeah so I think for me naturally my coping mechanisms were just stick your head in the sand ignore it 
And I think that kind of stems from the role I decided for whatever reason to take on in childhood. Like I was the one without problems. I was like the easy one. I didn't get upset or need support, or at least I tried to be that. So when things happen, I do just tend not to talk about them. I'm not very outward emotionally and I don't like being that around others. I always kind of saw them as a me problem and not for anyone else to deal with. Both my siblings had mental health issues in childhood and I think I just saw that and was like, okay, let me not be, not give my parents anything else to worry about. So for me, talking about it was not an easy thing. It wasn't a natural thing. I just kind of went in on myself basically. And Verity really wanted to know kind of what happened. So I just said the least I possibly could to convey that something had without like spelling out the details because me spelling out the details also made it real in my mind and I was just avoiding it and in denial still really at that point that me saying those words out would kind of confirm it and I could kind of like pretend it hadn't happened for a bit longer in my mind. Yeah like despite being twins we are very different like I'm the person that has to know everything and all the ins and outs. Whereas Lucy definitely copes with like compartmentalising and pushing things to the back of her mind. You know, if he hadn't phoned me and told me that they'd woken up without underwear, I don't think Lucy would ever have told anybody. And we'd probably have tried to forget, you know, we process things very differently. And I was dealing with the additional thing of trying to come to terms with that this person that I'd loved and trusted had harmed my sister in the worst way imaginable. That was the hardest part for me. My PTSD actually started with secondary PTSD, which is where you hear about like a traumatic event from somebody else. So like the flashbacks and the visions and nightmares I had in the beginning were of her being harmed and me not being able to do anything. And that affected me first, like the most. Um, I stopped going to work. I couldn't sleep in my room where it happened. So I'd like lie on the floor on the, or on the sofa downstairs and just wait for sunrise <laughs> until I could sleep. But I think, yeah, we didn't really talk about how each of us were suffering and I think because I didn't want to center how I was because I've seen it as you know like what happened to Lucy was far worse I kind of just yeah didn't really talk about it very much. Lucy I'll come to you now if you could say what are your memories of that night and do you remember how you felt the morning after you were raped? Yeah so this is mainly retrospective because at the time I just remember feeling very blank and numb I now know that feeling is shock and I think I was experiencing some kind of dissociation at that point too. I didn't want to feel my body. I didn't want to feel my thoughts. I didn't want to think. I just remember the one clear thought that I did have was, I will never talk about this ever. I remember being scared of saying anything and disgusted when he brought it up. Like when I woke up and he was next to me. We woke up with our underwear, which he mentioned, and it made me feel really uncomfortable and anxious. And I just didn't want that conversation. I just remember trying to act as normal as possible, not give like anything away that... I felt uncomfortable or scared and just get home without notifying him of any of that. So I don't think it hit me initially. I think the way I reacted was quite self-protective, like very defensive to protect me from kind of what happened, I think, which helped initially because I don't think I would have gotten home if I had not felt numb, if those emotions had hit me. From your perspective, Lucy, when you had to have that conversation with Verity and tell her what had happened to you, how did you feel? Were you scared that if you told her she might not believe you and you would lose her or a different reaction? You know, what was your kind of thought process there? I wasn't scared of losing her. I think I'm really lucky and just so trusting of our relationship that that just didn't occur to me. My main concern was just that me telling her the full extent of what happened would upset her. Part of me keeping quiet was for self-protection, but a lot of it was protecting her from it too. I was very conscious of saying... The words, once it was out, I couldn't take it back. And 
I was just trying to deny that that experience had happened. So her, me saying it to her would make it into a thing that I would have had to confront and talk about. Can you tell me about the story from this point, from your perspective, Lucy, around reporting it, what happened with the case, and then we'll move on to the other court case with you, Verity, in a second, which I can imagine was re-traumatising on both occasions for both of you. Yeah, so initially I was just, I didn't want to think about it. Um, I mean, when I eventually got home after it happened, I just kind of crawled in my bed and I laid in the ball for hours. I just felt frozen in place. I didn't move, I didn't change, I didn't shower despite wanting to, I just couldn't move. My mind was really blank, like intentionally so. I just remember feeling shock. And as that subsided, just alternating kind of between pushing it to the back of my mind or crying and being angry. So that state of denial kind of lasted for quite a long time. I think I was quite conflicted because the person that had done it to me, I would never thought would have done that to me. Just because of the relationship we had, we were really good friends, we were close. And that was difficult for me to comprehend. There was a lot of questioning and going back and forth with myself, like, did that really happen? Just trying to accept the reality, I guess. So I didn't really report. I think it was till eight months later. I was really adamant in the beginning that I wasn't going to. I still cared about the person that had done that to me. and I knew his family. And I was kind of worried the impact a police investigation would have on him. Like... Eventually I realised he was selfish when he raped me and he didn't care to think of me. So I just decided not to think of him and to do kind of this for me. There's a moment I remember being in my parents' house in my bedroom. I was really at home quite a lot at that point because I was just struggling to cope with anything. So I just go to my parents and kind of be looked after. I think that was probably my rock bottom. I just remember being knelt on my carpet in front of my radiator, just sobbing and just thinking that I would always be that sad and anxious. I Googled, I hate feeling rubbish, so I always try and find like self-help things to try and overcome it. So that's kind of what I did. I just Googled like how to cope after rape. And I read loads of things it said to do, but the one thing that I hadn't tried yet was reporting. It said that the process could be really therapeutic. So that's what changed my mind. It was like this last resort of self-help. So yeah, I think that's the night I had the conversation with Verity where I told her the full extent of everything that happened. I remember really apprehensive for that. I did not want to say those words, but I did. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a nice conversation. I had been avoiding it for a reason. But then I made a report online. An officer called me like pretty much straight away and had like a brief phone interview. And then they sent someone around that day to take an initial report from me. And then the following week, I had to give a video interview at the station. And I had to hand over all my mobile phones, uh, social media accounts and stuff for them to look into, which I hadn't expected. So that was quite interesting. And then not a lot really happened after that. The department overseeing my case was in London and my abuser was like not in that area. So they had to take a day off to go and interview him. And I remember them calling me saying, oh, we're going to go interview on them, him on this day. And it was his birthday. <laughs> and I don't know, like, for a very long time throughout this, I was still thinking about him and, like, how it would impact him. And I said, no, you can't do that. Like, it's his birthday. Like, that's just, like, a terrible thing to do. I also thought it would look vindictive, like, from my point of view, that I, I kind of, like, orchestrated this to happen on that day. So I said, like, please, can you not? Um, so they did it and they interviewed him, like, a few weeks later where he just gave a no comment interview and because of that they then had to say okay he hasn't given a, a a comment interview so that's like an alley of evidence that hasn't been pursued 
So that's when they were like, okay, we're going to have to download everything from your phones just to try and get enough evidence. And I was told, you know, it was like a relatively strong case. But then nine months later, I was calling for a meeting and told like the case was dropped. There was just not enough evidence. And I was given the option to appeal the case, but I decided that that's not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to move on with my life at that point and put it all behind me. But that was kind of short-lived because of the second case. Verity, as you remember the specifics of the second court case, I'll go to you to talk about this. Can you take me back to how it started and why you ended up having to go to court a second time? I think it really started kind of within criminal case that we were trying to pursue like I reported after Lucy I wasn't ready when she was I remember crying when I gave the police his date of birth and address when they came over to take her initial statement I gave a supporting witness statement where I mentioned him sexually assaulting me but I didn't really go into much detail and I didn't want to report despite the police encouraging me to do so I just remember crying a lot and just not being ready but yeah I mean after that suicide attempt I knew I had to start healing so I reported too and also to support Lucy's case after that no comment interview that he gave I was just desperate for her to get justice and knew me reporting could only kind of help that for me I found the process like incredibly traumatizing and frustrating and I kind of wish I hadn't put myself through it knowing now what it's like especially like the time it takes and just yeah it was pretty awful but yeah it kind of came out of in that interview where they told us they weren't taking the case any further I just remember sitting in the room we had the detective the sewer officer who's like a special officer that investigates like sexual abuse crimes and they're kind of higher up And then it was me, Lucy, and my boyfriend was there as well. So we were all in the room and they just told us everything. And then when their superior left, it was just the detective and the sew it. And they kind of said to us, like, oh, like, what are you going to do now? And we were just like, oh, we're just going to go get some breakfast. (laughs) And they mentioned that they were the ones that encouraged us, like, off record, but to speak out online um they kind of coached us through what to say they were basically like don't say rape say serious sexual assault don't use his name and use alleged and we took like their encouragement to speak out but we didn't listen to the parts of like using certain wordings because we were just like no we're gonna label it as what it is it felt wrong to write alleged in front of something that you've like lived and that you know happened so that was strange and then yeah a couple of weeks later we just had this like massive pile of documents delivered to our house and Lucy was going out at the time and it was kind of very soap opera of like someone knocking on your door and being like you've been served um and I knew exactly what it was for some reason I was just like no like he can't have done that like what we were still just like in complete denial over who he was like still quite trusting of like no he wouldn't do that he's a good guy even though we'd gone through all of this and the you know the police investigation we still would kind of hope that you know he'd do the right thing eventually and we just kind of like looked at it and like laughed or were in just disbelief and I remember looking at it and being like I don't want to have to even like indulge this like I don't want to have to respond to this like this is ridiculous but obviously having to because you know it's like the courts and they're like all big and powerful. <laughs> After the initial police investigation Lucy told me off air that speaking out became part of her healing process as I'm sure it was for you too Verity. When that ability was eventually guillotined and some of your agency was effectively removed in this way, how difficult was that for you both? Yeah, I think for me especially, I just, you know, my voice was kind of all I had left at this point. And having that taken away, you know, I just felt like they'd taken everything from me at this point and that they were just coming for that too, that they wouldn't stop until I had like nothing left. It brought up just like 
everything again. But yeah, I think just having my voice taken away or them trying to take it away was just definitely the hardest thing. In the BBC News interview, you talked about the financial implications and aspects of having to deal with that process. Can you give me the reality of those for the listeners who might not be aware? And did they feel like sort of additional kicks in the teeth to your mental health state? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it just brought everything back up again when we were desperately trying to heal. When the case got dropped, we had the conversation of did we want to appeal that decision? And I wanted to, but Lucy didn't. And I always let her lead, mainly because I was like, she's been through worse. I always put her first. She always comes first. So whatever she decided, I was happy with. And I was going to let her make that decision. And I said, whatever you decide, I'm completely okay with that. And, And I was. But I think the biggest kicker was seeing him cite stress and anxiety at our speaking out as being a reason to silence us. It was just like it never occurred to him to think that the hurt, you know, of the hurt he'd caused us. He was always focused on himself and went as far as centering himself as a victim. In those first documents we were served, he didn't even deny anything that happened. He just said that it was misuse of private information and that misuse of private information was us talking about the sexual assault and the police investigation and that us naming him was basically harassment and they tried to say you know we'd mounted an online campaign we literally just were tweeting to our really small number of followers and it wasn't a coordinated campaign at all it was just us like venting into the void essentially and it was funny because later when we had to raise money for the like the crowdfund to fund our legal costs that was then when you could see we were evidently that was more of what a coordinated campaign from us would look like where it had a lot of engagement was retweeted by like accounts of big followers and I think it ended up having like a million kind of interactions or something ridiculous so it's quite obvious that it wasn't that and that they were just like pulling at straws the way he focused on himself was difficult anything he was feeling was because of his actions we both have PTSD diagnoses so to see him saying that he felt anxious because of what we were just like saying the truth was you know laughable the audacity was just incredible I think the fact that we were forced to crowdfund for our costs because we struggled to get legal aid was quite difficult because it meant we had to like waive our anonymity because we had to you know have our story out there so that people could maybe sympathize and donate and even that he tried to shut down he sent a cease and desist to the crowd justice platform and they obviously ignored it and he even sent cease and desist to my MP who shared the crowd justice page we're quite lucky in that we were quite involved with the Labour Party at the time so my MP was just so supportive and lovely and she fought that cease and desist. I remember that conversation on the phone with her and I just cried because I was so upset that I'd put her in that position and I was just like, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she was just like, no, don't worry. Like, we're going to fight this, like, don't worry. And I think that conversation was so important to me. That was really reassuring to hear that from her. And then we also had a friend who was recently elected to parliament and she was really supportive and like she donated loads of money and so did RMP in their office. And I remember them telling me this and both times me and Lucy sat there just crying, being like, I can't believe we have this support. So it was like a mixed bag of being like, these are massive kicks in the teeth to our mental state, seeing these things written down, having this court case. But also we had these beautiful moments of support from People we didn't necessarily expect. A lot of it was strangers, but also from other places in our lives too. And I think that was actually probably the thing that kept us going, to be honest. I know this would be a difficult question, Verity, but given the re-traumatising process it gave to both of you, the financial costs and the mental health implications it had, do you regret at all naming your abuser or do you stand by what you did? 
no, I mean, I 100% stand by what I did and believe that, you know, it's my right to have done that. It was to warn others at the end of the day and it was to share my story for my own healing. I had no idea that it would lead to a legal battle. But even after all that and the stress, I think it was the right thing to do. I hope that other victims will hopefully have seen that and been warned. And that, you know, maybe as well, it will make him think twice about potentially hurting someone like that again. Because I think he definitely centres himself in terms of caring more about his reputation than anything else. So if he sees, you know, the consequences of that as being someone potentially like outing him as being who he is, then maybe he'll think twice. I wish it hadn't brought so much pain. I obviously wish this court case hadn't happened. I don't think that was a wrong thing to do at all. And that was actually a really hard thing to do for us, especially naming him. Even in our personal lives, we don't use his name I refer to him as my ex or thingy we refer to him as thingy or just use the word like abuser or whatever like we don't say his name so for us to make that statement put it out online and to see his name written within that that was really tough and that was a huge thing for us to do so yeah I guess then to be smacked back with like court documents was a pretty tough pill to swallow but yeah I don't regret it Lucy how do you feel on it because I do feel slightly differently. I mean, I don't think I did anything wrong. And I'm like glad I spoke out. I mean, after the police investigation, I was feeling kind of gagged because I just couldn't talk about it. And so it was something I wanted to do. But it put my life on hold. And I lost so much throughout that court case. Like I lost jobs. I had to take time off work to file documents. My mental health was really bad because it just kept bringing everything up. And I'd made a decision after the police investigation that I was going to like move on. And that statement was literally like, for me, that was closure. That was me saying, you know, this happened and now I'm moving on from it. And to not be allowed to do that was really difficult. I missed a year of uni. It was just not great. I think I just saw it as a loss. There was nothing I had gained from it. And the amount of pain it caused, if I had have known that when I put out the statement, I think I knowingly would have avoided that. I think... Yeah, we would have probably done it differently in terms of just taking the police's advice of like not naming him or using alleged, but still have done the statement. I think it's really difficult as well because it just kind of extended the amount of loss we were feeling for a longer period of time and just brought more loss. You know, we'd both lost like loads of jobs and like just couldn't really like act normally. Like instead of like going out with friends, we were suddenly writing documents and statements and Lucy was going to the court in her lunch break to file documents and, you know, it was just, yeah, that was pretty tough. Once it was over and you were forced to settle for the situation you have today, can you explain that and how did you feel in that moment, Verity? I cried a lot. I know that's kind of been a theme. (laughs) I feel like I've said I've cried a lot throughout this, but I did. Like, there was a lot of tears. (laughs) I was gutted. I basically was holding out for that day in court where I could say to him, this is what you did to us and this is how it hurt us. Like, so basically just like a victim impact statement. And I hated just the idea of not being able to, you know, have that day in court. I guess when you report these things to the police, you expect to at least have your day in court. You know, you know that the jury will go one way or another and we'd accept that but not even getting it to court was just really tough it just felt like we were just being denied justice at you know every turn if we had the money we would have gone the whole way 100% we were always on the same page with that I always let Lucy lead and make the decisions I made it apparent that whatever she decided to do I'd be okay with and for me so much of it was just for her to be okay she was very much done and needed for her own mental health and life to heal so that was my priority we ended the case knowing we could still you know campaign for others and Lucy said I'll only end this case if I know that we can campaign to you know end this practice so no one else has to go through this and that was enough for us so naming him for us was never a big deal you know like I said earlier we never use his name 
find it quite triggering. So for that to be the only thing that we can't do, it wasn't really an issue for us. You know, for us, it was a win. He didn't get anything he wanted. He didn't get the reporting restrictions he'd got. He didn't get the injunction he wanted. Both hearings went our way and we waived our anonymity. I mean, it's weird to not be able to get say kind of this person did this to me. I can say what happened and I can talk about everything, but I can't identify the person that did it. But I don't think that really matters. Me and you, Lucy, have both been recipients of eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy or EMDR which I know has done wonders for you it's done wonders for me and we both live with PTSD which is a big reason why people get it can you tell the listeners about this therapy how you moved on or try to move on from the rape why it gets to the heart of trauma in a way that maybe CBT doesn't and how it's helped your recovery journey yeah, so this is when me as a psychology student kind of jumps out a little bit. <laughs> I've tried to put it in like the most layman terms, but basically, obviously there are different types of CBT, but the traditional CBT works primarily on changing like faulty thinking and negative thoughts. Whereas EMDR therapy, it works on this basis that traumatic memories and symptoms, which are intrusive, like flashbacks and stuff, stem from the fact that these traumatic memories haven't been filed away and stored in your long-term memory like they should. Instead, they kind of remain live in your working memory. They're really easily accessed and they contain the same emotional response as they did when they occurred, which is why when triggered, a flashback can be so intense. It activates that fight and flight response. It hasn't been processed and filed away. So it's just kind of there waiting. So EMDR kind of works to process those memories properly, removing any negative emotions or thoughts that accompany them. So I feel that CBT works more on treating the symptomology, like just those negative thoughts, whereas EMDR kind of goes to the heart, the cause of those symptoms. And it also focuses on body sensations. You're asked throughout therapy to scan your body for any tensions. The body can process trauma in so many ways, and that's one of them holding on to these feelings. So for me, it kind of alleviated all of those things. I fully stand by the fact EMDR for me was life-changing. I cannot rate it high enough. I learned to love myself again and be kind to myself, which was something I really struggled with. I learned to cope without avoiding things, which is something I'd literally been doing since childhood. And I kind of realised it's the worst coping mechanism. It put me actually at a higher risk of developing PTSD because I avoided it, because I was dissociating. It kind of gave more power to those traumatic memories. Yeah, it's quite weird. I, get, I usually get really emotional whenever I think about it, or my therapist, because I'm just so grateful for what therapy was able to give me. It sounds really cliche, but it has given me a completely new perspective on life. I was very much caught up in my own head, ruminating on trauma and negativity. Like I was never present. So I didn't even feel basic things. Like if I was outside, like the sun on my skin, I wouldn't notice that. So to be able to experience the world in that way now is really cool. I hadn't realized how much I had just been missing out on. I want to talk about the other parts of how rape affects or reporting of rape affects people, which is their external relationships. So, for example, friendships. After you reported the rape, Lucy, and you told and Verity told your social circles or they found out about what he had done, how did they react? It was a bit weird. Like, I didn't directly speak to them because I was so avoidant of everything. Those conversations weren't something I wanted to have. So I actually asked Verity to tell people because basically we were all in the same friend group and I didn't want to see him again. So I just said, you know, do you mind just telling people, saying, you know, I don't want a conversation about it, but just saying, basically this has happened. Lucy doesn't want to be around this person and also not to bring it up. <laughs> so I kind, of, I kind of put that on Verity. I didn't really deal with it. And then like throughout that, it was probably about... Hmm, like nine months later, maybe, I'd asked them a, a couple of times on a couple of occasions to like not be friends with him 
on like social media and stuff. We were going on like a girl's holiday and the police investigation was ongoing and I was really aware of if they tagged me in a photo and they were friends with him or whatever, he would see it. And I was just really like nervous and paranoid that he would use anything against me in the police investigation. I just didn't want him seeing anything. So I basically said like, oh, can you remove him as friends? And they were like, yes, some of them did. Some of them said no. And so I immediately cut them off. And then a few months later, it was someone's birthday and they were out like partying with him. And I'd seen that on a Snapchat story and like no one had told me. And I'd asked them so many times, like, please do not be friends with this person. Like for me and like my mental health, like I can't be around this person and I can't have people that are around this person. And that was just really horrible to see. I remember, I think I just sent everyone a message, just like, I can't be friends with you anymore and blocked them all. I haven't spoken to them since. What really kind of affected me was the fact that all of those people I have been friends with for like 10 years and they were more my friends than his. And so it really, really hurt that they kind of took his side. Like, yes, he did seem like that kind of person that wouldn't do it. Also, knowing me, they should know that I wouldn't lie about that. And so it really made me question myself, wonder why they doubted me so much. I think it's quite natural, you know, if someone like doesn't like you for any reason, you kind of like look into yourself and be like, okay, well, what is it that I've done? And it just made me really, really hard on myself because I just couldn't find a reason like why people that I cared about and I had put so many years into and thought we were really good friends, just it didn't turn out that way. And I think that was quite difficult to kind of reckon with. One friend wrote me like a handwritten letter apologizing and my mum had given it to me and said, you know, like this came, I opened it because I was worried it was going to be like abusive but it was really nice like I think you should reply and at that point when I blocked those people and cut them off like that was it for me I didn't really want to go back I wasn't super comfortable with the idea that she was still kind of mutual friends with these people but I kind of gave her the benefit of the doubt and was like okay like you know that was a lot for you to reach out to me and we did kind of become friends again but then when I spoke out online she said she couldn't support what I did and she blocked me and we're not friends anymore. I want to move on to relationships now or romantic relationships because much like how you both reacted to the rape and sexual assault, your relationship situations were a lot different when you reported it and how you moved on with life going forward. When it comes to your relationship, Lucy, I believe yours actually ended after you told him you'd been raped. How difficult was that for you? Yeah, so uh, that was weird. I mean, again, it was kind of like, I mean, okay, so basically this was an on-off relationship when I was 16. We weren't together actually at the time that I told him that I was raped. I think I kind of chose to tell him over my family and friends at the time because it was, he was kind of distant from me. It was kind of detached. I knew I wouldn't get like that same emotional reaction as I would from like Verity. It kind of made me go back to this person. I was just really scared of being with anyone new or like dating. So I kind of just went back to him as like a comfort blanket. It was easy, it was comfortable, it was like a very bad decision. But at the time, I think I was so scared of being with someone new, it just made sense to go back to something. I thought it would give me a support in a way that new relationships wouldn't and kind of just give me the comfort that I was like needing in that moment. But yeah, basically it wasn't until I started speaking online about my experience that he didn't like that. That was the aspect he didn't like. So. It was kind of okay that I'd been raped and assaulted, but I wasn't allowed to publicise it. He thought I was really stupid and he didn't want to be with someone like that, basically. So yeah, obviously it really hurt hearing those things. 
But for me, my voice was so important and I'd already helped people just by speaking out and I'd had messages from people saying that. So I knew it was important and I wasn't ever going to be something I would give up. So that was quite an easy choice for me to make to kind of like get rid of this person who was like negatively speaking on my choices. And that made it quite easy to just leave them behind basically. Going back onto the dating scene must have been incredibly hard and rife with frustrations and complexities and nuances and fears. I believe that you told your now boyfriend, but was then, well, you were on your second date about this, which I can just, like my mind actually goes like nuts when I think about how brave you were to do this. And trauma disclosure is a big thing that I find a lot of anxiety with doing vent. And I actually deleted dating apps. Well, large because they're a picture gallery right now, but mostly because I think it was affecting my mental health. And, you know, people can Google you quite easily when you're in this space and stuff. And, you know, you get that anxiety of, well, are they Googling you and is someone ghosting you because they, you know, it's all those sort of overthinking anxieties that it leads to. Can you tell me about that second date you had and then maybe how you felt after he gave you that very positive reaction? Yeah, oh my God, bless him. I can't believe I did that. Like we still talk about that sometimes and I laugh and I'm like, I can't believe I said that. Um, at the time, I think things were still quite fresh and... I think like something not necessarily spoken about a lot is with mental health issues sometimes like you tend to disclose inappropriate details and that was definitely the case for me like I wasn't necessarily phased by the disclosure just I was going through so much at that time it just felt important for people in my life to know that about me so I thought it would be more of a point of contention than it was I'd lost so many people in relationships that I didn't want to experience that loss again. I didn't want to be with someone for like a long time and then find out that they weren't okay with what I was doing, mainly just in terms of how vocal I am about my sexual assault. I thought it was kind of a way of weeding out the week really quickly, like a test, like, so we could both move on essentially without any real loss if they didn't like it. It was very much a question of like, can you handle this? I was also quite worried that I would have a bad reaction like in intimate moments during sex or something. Like, I hadn't been with anyone new and that was such a point of anxiety for me. I was concerned I would start crying and they just wouldn't understand. And so it kind of felt important for me to give that knowledge quite early on to people, just so that they would kind of understand me and my reactions. And if you felt comfortable saying, how has the rape affected other parts of your relationship, particularly around intimacy? I won't ask you to divulge anything you're not comfortable sharing here, but what do you feel comfortable saying when it comes to the traumas and the after effects of it? So I think at first it was quite different. It definitely affected me shortly afterwards. Like certain acts I wouldn't do without being upset or I had like a tendency to freeze. Sometimes I would just start crying. I had this new anxiety of like new people. I kind of worked on those things by finding comfort in an old partner, but I still had flashbacks and triggers, but it was weird. Like actually being with somebody new stopped that for me. Like my biggest worry turned out to be the best thing. There's still a couple of things like I'm not okay with like having the lights off i'm not great with not being able to see for the most part now it's like i don't really have any issues like i think having a partner who respects me and my boundaries was really important i've never had that level of care before and i fully trust him and i just know he wouldn't hurt me so i think knowing that i am loved and having faith that i will always be okay in those moments has helped me not have those reactions Verity, you were more fortunate in the sense that the relationship you are in now, at the time you were close friends with that person for a very long time. So I believe you didn't even have to disclose the rape in the way that Lucy did. How comforting was that? Yeah, it was just really nice to have that friendship as a base. You know, he'd been essentially a confidant for me for a little while. He was one of the first people I told as well about what had happened. 
so the trust was already very much there you know we got on so well when we were really similar we'd kind of just sit in the kitchen a lot just chatting <laughs> and him knowing allowed me to relax you know I knew he accepted me and my survivor status so it wasn't really a conversation we ever needed to have he's just the biggest support and he's become such an amazing ally he knows all the statistics around sexual violence that I kind of know off by heart and sight he does his own research and sends me articles and we talk about it a lot like not in relation to what happened to me personally, but just around the topic, because we're both really interested in the justice system and are really political. But yeah, it's just nice to have someone who's watched me go through everything, you know, from the incident, you know, we lived together, he saw everything. So for him to still be so supportive and so loving, I think that's just been incredible you know someone who's watched us go through all of that he was there when the police told us the case wasn't going any further and the reasons for it and I think he's learned a lot but for him to be so supportive of me and Lucy is really important you know to see him develop such a passion for justice and a deep caring about sexual violence um, and ending violence against women and girls and wanting to see changes to the system is just really heartwarming it's interesting to see another person's perspective especially when they've seen everything you know he lived with me and Lucy when the court case was going on the second one and also the police investigation he saw everything <laughs> so it's been interesting for him to you know have seen all the pain and rage and kind of it makes that feel valid and deserving of being heard and healed I think it's just really comforting to have a partner like that you wrote about these experiences in a really deep and heartfelt article called love after abuse can you tell me about the issues you discussed in that article and, and how they affected your mental health and relationships more generally? Yeah, so I wrote that during like the first lockdown. I can't actually remember when I put it out, but during the first lockdown, I really struggled with my PTSD and I think it really affected my relationship with him. Not in any kind of like big way, but I was just avoiding any kind of touch and contact. We were isolating back home with my parents and a lot of the sexual abuse that I experienced had kind of happened there in that setting. So... I was definitely just on edge. And, you know, when I talk about my sexual assault, I refer to that one incident in August 2017. But throughout that relationship, I was regularly raped and sexually assaulted. You know, I used to wake up to him having sex with me and I was kind of conditioned into just thinking it was normal. And I still am unlearning those things. So, you know, I wrote that article for myself, but also kind of as a love letter and thank you to my current boyfriend. Not that, you know, respecting my boundaries and getting consent should be worshipped, but yeah, I know that's something every one should do but it's more his patience and understanding that I think is worthy of no I know it must be hard to see me flinch away from skin to skin contact sometimes and not to take that personally I just like how he doesn't question it he knows that I can't do certain things like I mentioned you know the light in the article I have to have the lights on and you know torch lights often on our phones <laughs> there's just like certain little things that we just he knows to do he's he's always accepted it without question and I think it's just so important to have that space he kind of creates these environments where we can talk about stuff and that I just feel safe and, and heard. And I think that's important. The way he's handled it has basically allowed me to kind of heal. Do you feel like you're in a better place now than when you wrote that article when it comes to those triggers or the trauma itself? Yeah, definitely. I think the house we currently have that we share together in London, I kind of call it like my little safe haven. The bedroom I have is... I don't know, I just feel like I can relax completely, basically. I'm definitely in a better place. So yeah, definitely, I think. Before we move on to the Gemini Project, something else you've lived with and struggled with in the past is your panic and anxiety disorder, Lucy. When did you first start to exhibit these symptoms? When were you first diagnosed? And, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day -day life? I understand at first you thought it was asthma. Yeah, 
I can't pinpoint a specific time really when I noticed anxiety because I think I probably had it for so long. It just became a normal thing for me. It wasn't until A-level exams, the results day, where things kind of started to come out that I couldn't ignore. I went on a night out to celebrate in the middle of the club, like started hyperventilating and being really ill. So I went outside and I got a taxi and I went home to get an inhaler because I just assumed that was asthma that was making me breathe in that way. I couldn't find an inhaler at home. So my mum was worried, obviously, and called an ambulance. And they came and they were quite confused for a while about what was wrong with me. And they kept asking me if I'd been drugged. Eventually, though, they realised I was having a panic attack. I think all my anxieties had like just come to the surface. I was relaxing and enjoying myself and I wasn't keeping these things pushed to the corners of my mind anymore. And I think it just kind of all came out at once. Exams I tend to find really stressful and I think that was a trigger for me. Like finally celebrating was a release for those anxieties and it just completely overwhelmed me. For like another year, I'd say, I kind of pretended to be fine. I would make doctor's appointments and I'd cancel them or I wouldn't go. And I was kind of like, oh, I can handle this myself. I'm doing like a lot of self-help stuff. But I was increasingly having more and more panic attacks. And it was actually a time at university. I took a Xanax tablet and I just remember sitting there, like once it kicked in being like, oh my gosh, is this what I'm supposed to feel like? <laughs> like, is this what like, living without anxiety is like? And then I realized every single day, I was feeling so incredibly anxious, but I just hadn't recognized it because I couldn't, I guess, really remember a time without those feelings. So yeah, by that point, I kind of couldn't pretend that I didn't have an issue anymore. I didn't really want any fuss and I was kind of against therapy because I wasn't comfortable at that point talking about my issues. So I just went to the doctor and said I wanted to go on SSRIs. Like I'd done psychology A-level and I was like, this is the one I want to go on. <laughs> They offered me one initially and I said no actually like my twins on them and she had bad side effects on that one So please put me on this specific one <laughs> And they put me on that and now it's been four years taking those every single day and I haven't really had any panic attacks maybe like three and only Because of like the traumatic experiences that we talked about it's no longer a daily thing, which is kind of great <laughs> I want to reflect now on how far you both come as people since what you went through and your rape and your sexual assault. A previous Just Checking In podcast called Ella Brooks, who talked about being raped, talked about this idea of post-traumatic growth, which I'm, I think you'll be aware of, Lucy. I know this might sound a very weird question, but what did your experiences here when it came to the sexual abuse teach both of you about yourselves, your ability to survive, hopefully now thrive despite the ordeal you went through? Lucy, do you want to go first? I do think it taught me a lot. I think it's one of those moments where so many things happen where you have to confront things about yourself and about the world that maybe don't necessarily ring true. I think before I was quite trusting of people and like their general kindness. And I think it kind of made me confront that. It's taught me essentially that life can literally throw anything at me and I will be okay no matter what. It's taught me, you know, that sometimes these bad things happen and they don't happen for a reason. It's not because I'm a bad person. It's not because of something I did or who I am. It just happens. And that kind of really helped me shake off any of these negative like attributions that I had taken because I was trying to find meaning from it. But basically like, you know, something crap happened for no reason. And that's just a part of life. It's not about me. <laughs> it also taught me that I can't protect Verity from everything despite how much I want to. She always knows if something's wrong <laughs> and the truth will come out. And also she wants to protect me in the same way that I do, and I should just let her sometimes, that she can actually handle anything. And while seeing her upset is like horrible, that's also a part of life and just dealing with things. I think before I was very much 
avoidant of emotions and through therapy and stuff I've been taught you know that is literally what being human is and you have to feel those things and being resilient is actually feeling those things and holding them in your mind and dealing with it rather than just being able to kind of tough it out so I think I'm much more healthy when approaching kind of negative emotions now. Verity what has it taught you? I think it's shown my resilience and strength. I definitely embrace the term survivor. You know, I feel like that's exactly what I've done. I've overcome the most difficult situation. And even after the suicide attempt, I'm still here. I'm quite proud of having overcome so much trauma and, you know, to still be here. I think it's also taught me that I'm, you know, worthy and deserving of respect. My relationship with my my now partner, I think that's taught me a lot in terms of seeing him experience the situation through his eyes and the care he gives me. There's one moment I remember really, really vividly a couple of years ago where I froze when we were sort of being intimate. I had a flashback and he just stopped immediately and held me and asked if I was okay. And I remember just crying, kind of out of fear of the memory, but also just because his response was so lovely. And I just felt touched that he was that intuitive to know that me freezing was because of a flashback. But to have that kind of level of care and love, you know, like he wakes me from my nightmares. I think that's really helped. You know, I have Lucy as well. I think having the support from people that we've had has helped me the most. It just made me feel that, you know, I'm worthy. And then through that, it's given me a space where I can then heal. And I definitely think that, yeah, right now I'm thriving. And as twin sisters, what has it taught you about each other? And do you think your relationship is stronger now than before the sexual abuse took place? I think it's cemented that we put each other first and that, you know, nothing can come between us. Like, even if at one point I maybe thought it would, while I couldn't even look her in the eye. I think we're just so lucky to have each other, to have gone through this together and not have had to do it alone. I'm so proud of Lucy. To see how far she's come and to see her journey through therapy, I'm kind of in awe of her strength. To know from, you know, at one point I used to hug her when she was crying and genuinely thought I'd never seen someone so broken and that if I kind of, like, let go, she'd, like, just crumble. She was at a really low point. So to see her now and to see the way she's gone from this person who was kind of scared to stand up for herself and didn't really want to speak about stuff to be someone who will stand up for herself. Like I know now that I don't have to be the one that has to like come barging in like the little fiery sister, which was kind of always what I was (laughs) and be really shouty and feisty on her behalf. I don't have to do that. She's fine, basically. It's just nice to know that she's okay. You know, we're there for each other in our moments of weakness and also give each other strength. We definitely take our strength from each other as well as ourselves. But I think it's much stronger. I think we're just more aware of the unconditional love we have for each other and that nothing can come between us. So I think, I think, yeah, it's just cemented that, which has been really nice. And Lucy, what about you? Yeah, I said exactly, exactly the same. I couldn't really reiterate that more perfectly. Just feel really grateful the fact that I didn't have to go through this alone. And the fact that I can rely on Verity, that I have that person in my life is really nice and just... I think it just makes me realise and be aware of what I have and just kind of count those blessings. Thanks for listening to part one of Lucy and Verity's story. If you want to find out how this story concludes, please listen to part two, where we talk about the work they do now to help victim survivors of sexual abuse through the Gemini Project. And we also have a little chat about our mental health as well. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.